A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to take and gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So, bake what you want to bake, and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left, and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I haven't met you yet. My name is Jeremy, and I'm one of the pastors. And I hope you had a great week. I hope you enjoyed 
the weather week that we just had, I mean, that was like spring in full effect. I was loving it. On Wednesday, we hit the 80s. I was feeling great. I don't know if you're like this, but I'm just, everything is awesome. All right. I'm driving windows down, music up, tribe called Quest. I get home. The boys are playing in the driveway. They're playing basketball. The whole neighborhood's in the driveway. I'm loving it. I come in like, this is great. Let me play with you. You know, I've got next, you know, parenting is so easy. And of course, because it's Missouri, it's supposed to snow tomorrow. I don't like it. I don't know what we did to deserve this. But this week coming up, when it's 25, 28, and it's gray, and it's wet, and it's nasty, I'm going to just be like, everything's awful. Nothing is good. Windows are up. Music is down. I get home, and the kids are inside fighting about screen time. I'm like, I've had enough. Just go to your rooms. Read until bedtime. You know, they're like, it's 4.30. Just go. And I don't know if the weather affects you as much as it does me, but I know for certain that there is there is something strange, like I, I can find a, a way to be frustrated or to complain or to grumble when things aren't going well. I don't have to remind myself when the weather is nasty to get a little bit annoyed by it. But when things are going great and when the weather is awesome, I, I have to remind myself. I have to be attentive and be aware. Like I have to, to do something extra just to be content and to really enjoy it the most natural thing for me, and, and I suspect that I'm not alone in this, it's, it's to grumble and complain and to be frustrated with the one thing that's going wrong when 10 things are going right. We're focusing on Exodus 16 this morning, the passage we just read, but there's actually three consecutive stories, Exodus 15, 16, and 17, and they're basically all the exact same story. We see Israel in the wilderness, chapter 15. It's three days after the last passage we read where the Israelites are singing the song of Moses and of Miriam. They're sacrificing, they're, they're dancing. God has rescued them from Egypt. Three days later, they start grumbling in the wilderness. We'll see in chapter 16, the passage we read, the exact same thing. About six weeks later, they begin to grumble again. They need food, they need water, and they're grumbling against God and again, he provides. Chapter 17, which I'll reference just a little bit, the exact same thing happens. A few more weeks go by, they're hungry, they're thirsty. God provides water from the rock. Three consecutive narratives about their need and God's provision. In all three narratives, you see the people's need, you see their grumbling, you see God provide, and you see God teach them to trust him in the wilderness. And so we're going to look at this in three scenes this morning, the problem of grumbling, the provision of God, and the process of growth. I don't know if you caught that, but that's a double alliteration. The problem of grumbling, the provision of God, and the process of growth. I know, hold your applause. It's, thank you. No, I said hold it. Mark. We'll start with the first thing. It's the problem of grumbling. Verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. See, grumbling is a constant threat for us. As, as believers, for non-Christians, for human beings, grumbling is a constant threat. It's always easier to find something wrong in our lives than it is to recognize and enjoy 
the things that are going well. And further, nothing is more unifying than grumbling or complaining. I don't know if you've noticed this at, at work or at school, but if you're complaining about something and if you can find with your coworkers something that you can complain about together, I mean, it's one of the most unifying, like, team-building things you can do to sort of stand around the water cooler and just talk about something that you all don't like together. It's a, it's a sick and a sad way to build relationships, but in, in our country especially, so many relationships, so many communities are built around a shared dislike of something. It's so easy to grumble. It's so easy to complain. And in each of these passages, all three of them, we see the Israelites longing to go back to Egypt. Like they're actually saying it was better when we were in Egypt, which is just not true at all. I mean, for 400 years, they were oppressed. They were being killed. Their children were being killed. But as they remember it, they say, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. So I think the hunger is starting to go to their heads a little bit. And this is something that always goes with grumbling. It requires us to believe untrue things, to have unrealistic alternatives in our mind. We think that it was easier before. We think that it'll be better in the future. If it wasn't for this one person or this boss, I would be doing so much better. All of my life would be going great if just this one thing were not true. But what Moses says is this, God has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Now, this is a hard message that grumbling is not just against other people, but it's against God himself. It's not just against our circumstances, it's against our Lord. He's the one that's put us in our bodies, put us in our relationships, put us in our jobs, put us in our communities. So often our grumbling against others is actually a grumbling against God. Now in defense of the Israelites, it's not like they had no reason to grumble. I mean, we can give them a hard time. They started to grumble three days after the Exodus event. But the reality is they are in a desert. This is the Arabian desert. Like it gets 130 degrees in the summer where they are. I looked it up on Wikipedia, so you know it's legit. Three days, four days is all it takes if you have no food and no water to die out in the desert like this. So they really are at risk. They really are in danger. They are in need. They do have reason to grumble. And this reminds us that we're not so far away from some kind of total need or some kind of total collapse. It's been said before that Western society is only three days of empty shelves away from total chaos. I think we saw that at the start of COVID with the, the empty shelves at hy V and the disorder and the chaos and people hoarding toilet paper and getting in fights outside of Walmart over canned goods. I mean, things unraveled so quickly. Even more deeply, as we've been talking about the situation in, in Ukraine, we see Russian missiles falling in the country. I saw in the New York Times the satellite photo of a 40-mile-long convoy. I don't know if you saw that picture. Soldiers, tanks, equipment headed straight for the capital of Ukraine. If the past two years have taught us anything, it's that we're not as safe and secure as we thought we are. Being in danger, being in need, these are two near constants in life. Few societies, maybe no society has ever been as comfortable and secure as we are. And it means we can forget our desperate need. We are totally dependent on God. We're totally dependent on other people. 
To be human is to be in need. And maturity for the believer, it's not becoming less needy, it's, it's embracing the needs that you have. It's understanding your neediness and taking those to God and to others. And so as we return to our story, the Israelites grumble, they grumble to one another, they grumble against God. And how does he respond? Think about it. Like, does he smite them? Does he rebuke them? Discipline them? Does he, does he wipe them off the face of the earth? No. He just provides. He gives them what they need. This is the second thing, the provision of God. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against them. And so in the evening, these flocks of quail come and settle in their camps. Quail is a, a small bird in the pheasant family. Uh, again, Wikipedia was helpful there. They are extremely numerous. They're the exact opposite end of the spectrum from endangered. It's like in the category of like, we have too many of these, like with the pigeon. That's a quail. So a little bird flies low to the ground and they build their nests in the ground, which means they are extremely easy to catch. So God is, is handing them these little birds that they can catch, just walk outside every evening, gather as many of these birds as you want, and they're essentially able to make, you know, like turkey sandwiches. Whenever they want it, they have meat, they have protein for dinner. Even more, every single morning they go out, and there's little bits of bread that are forming from the dew on the grass. It says that they're like flakes of bread, that when the dew leaves, they're right there, and you can go and pick them up. I picture them like bagel chips, you know? You go out in the morning, as many bagel chips as you want to gather. The one who gathered didn't have too much or too little. I mean, the Bible is incredibly pro-gluten, pro-carb. I don't know if you've picked up on the storyline of bread throughout the scriptures. Very pro-carbs here. But the thing about the manna is this. It's good for one day. When they tried to keep it overnight, it's full of maggots, it's rotten, except for on the sixth day. When they keep it as God instructs them, and it's perfectly fine. But the message is that God is teaching them to trust. He's teaching them one day at a time to go out and to get what they need from him. He's going to provide for them one day at a time for the next 40 years. And the day that they enter the promised land is the last day that they eat quail and bread, because in the promised land they have everything they need. And the teaching here comes back up in the New Testament. In Matthew 6, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And here it is. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen? Isn't that true? This is why the Psalms and why Jesus and why the New Testament le letters are all leading us back to this truth that we don't need to worry, that we can trust God, but that we have to trust God afresh every single day. 
There's no relying on yesterday's miracles or yesterday's provision. Every day we have to go back to the Lord and go back to what He has provided. Our God is a providing God. It's the design of the universe. We are needy creatures. We are are created beings in His image, but we are created not because of sin, but from the moment of creation, we are created to be in need. We've been created for God to provide for us. Now, in all three of these scenes, God is doing something. He's teaching them. Specifically, he is testing them. It says it explicitly in verse 4. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for this day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. And so what does it mean that God is testing his people. We know from James in the New Testament chapter 1 that God doesn't test us to, to harm us or, or to break us down or to cause us to sin. I don't know about you, when, when I read the word testing in the scriptures, I immediately think of like educational testing. I don't know, some of you are, are in college or grad school, and so you might think of this too. I mean, you get a, a calculus exam or you have a, a journalism paper due and you get a grade on it, right? And the whole point of the educational test is to see if you have what it takes to stay in the community, if you have what it takes to to move forward. And if you do poorly, if you fail, they will remove you from the community. That's how school works. That's educational testing. So is that what God's doing? And the answer is absolutely not. When the scriptures talk about testing in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what they're talking about is a fatherly testing. I remember the first time I asked our oldest son, Joseph, uh, to mow the backyard. I tried to show him, you know, showed him the lawnmower. He had mowed the front yard before, which is a lot easier. It's flatter. Our backyard is, is sloped. There's one really steep part. And so I'm trying to help him learn how to mow the backyard so that I never have to do it again. And, and the first time he does it, he, he did great. He did great. But it was like there were sections of tall grass, like in between the rows, like he didn't quite overlap the wheel. But I went out there and just celebrated the fact that he had mowed the entire backyard all by himself for the first time. Just, you did great. This is wonderful. I sat inside with lemonade. I don't even have to take a shower. This is amazing. Now, the next day, I did have to go out there and cut those little sections and make it all even. But the next time he did it again, he got a little bit better. And the next time he got a little bit better. And now he can just do it totally on his own. I just say mow on Saturday and it's done. It's amazing. Way to go, Joe. But this is closer to the idea of testing in the scriptures. It's it's bringing a a child along, helping them to to learn how to do something until they can do it, until they can stand on their own. Deuteronomy 8 says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Know then in your heart that as a father tests his son, so the Lord your God tests you. The fatherly testing is not about seeing if you are qualified or not, whether or not you have what it takes to stay in the community. A good father doesn't kick his children out when they fail the first test. When you look at this passage, you look at all three of these narratives. Did, did Israel pass their test? No, like not at all. I mean, they went out there and they tried to gather on the seventh day. They tried to keep things on the first day till the next day. They literally broke each of the instructions that was given. 
They failed every single test and every single day God provided again. For 40 years, day after day after day, he provides. 1 Peter 1 says that God's testing is meant to do two things, to reveal and to refine. We saw that in Deuteronomy 8 as well, but testing reveals where we're at spiritually and it refines us like fire. Like a fire does to a metal, it purifies it, it strengthens it, makes it more resilient. And really, this is why God leads them out into the wilderness for 40 years in the first place, to test them as a father. They could have gone directly to the promised land, but it says that they weren't ready for that yet. They were going to have to fight these, these you know, people in each of the spots to get into the promised land, and God knew that if they went straight into those battles, they would turn back, go right back to Egypt. That's why they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And I hope you can see how God's testing is gradual throughout these narratives. I mean, when they were led through the the Red Sea, all they had to do was walk. God surrounded them in a cloud. He hid them. All they had to do was just walk through on dry ground, and God took care of everything else. But then this is sort of step two, and it's still not very much. All they have to do is go outside and pick up the quail, pick up the bread. So now they're becoming active participants. There's something that they must, must do to receive the miracle, but it's still like just no work at all. As time goes by in Exodus, they have to do a little bit more and a little bit more until finally they're ready for battle and they can actually do all the things that they need to do. Not so that they don't need God anymore, but so that they trust Him for absolutely everything. Maybe my favorite verse from my study this week comes from Deuteronomy 1. Israel's about to go into battle and Moses reminds the people, the Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. He's saying God carried you as a father carries his child for 40 years through the wilderness until you reached the promised land. Now that leads us right into the third thing, the process of growth. And really, we're already getting to it already because the process of our growth is almost identical to the process that the Israelites are going through in these passages. It's a long, slow process. God always works through process. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but it seems like God could just like pour into us all of the things we need, like deep character, a rich prayer life, uh, abundant faith, you know, wisdom for all the hard decisions. Couldn't he just like Or like in the Matrix where they just like hook things up to the guy's head and they download software. Like, could God do that? Yeah, of course. But the thing is that there's no relationship in that. Instead, God works through process. God works through wilderness. He exposes us to tests and in increasing measure, he exposes us to trial so that he can build us slowly over time. Wilderness is the place where the things you've relied on, they're no longer there. Wilderness can be spiritual. It it will be for us. Wilderness is anywhere where you can no longer rely on the things that have gotten you to this point. Wilderness is the place where you don't know where what you need is going to come or how it's going to come or if it comes at all. Wilderness is the place where you learn that you actually need far less in life than you thought 
you did. There's one scholar that says this about God leading Israel through the wilderness. His purpose was not transportation, it was transformation. He wasn't just trying to get them into paradise as fast as possible. If so, this was the most you know, roundabout, circuitous route you possibly could have taken. Rather, he was trying to wean them off their old Egypt ways of life, teaching them to trust and follow him. If you've been around somebody who's really mature, somebody who's really wise, loving, and, and transformed, as you get to know them, you find out that they didn't just have all of this poured into them, but they developed it in the wilderness. It was through the pain and the hardships and the trials and afflictions and sufferings of life that they developed this character that we so admire. It took them time in the wilderness. It took them pressing through really, really hard things. And you might say, well, I know a lot of people who have suffered and they're not transformed. They're just more bitter or upset than they were before the suffering. And that is true. That's a great question. And that I'm glad you asked because that leads me right to what I want to say next. Because there's something different in how we can go about suffering. There's, there's two different options that we have in the wildernesses of life. Everything in us wants to do it on our own, to, to provide for ourselves, to fight for ourselves, defend ourselves. And yet God is holding out before us bread and water, if only we will take it. Remember Deuteronomy 8, the man was supposed to teach the people that they could not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God is exposing you in the wilderness to the elements of a broken world, but he's also leaving you bread and water that's enough for you to get by. God sustains you with his spiritual bread in the wilderness. And the scriptures tell us, of course, that this word of the Lord is God's word. It is the scriptures. It's also his personal presence in prayer. And so specifically, a person who is transformed in Christ, that is mature and wise and loving and has all the fruit of the spirit, it's because they know the wilderness and specifically because they've learned how to find bread in the wilderness. They've learned how to rely not on themselves, but on the Lord. This is the first Sunday of Lent, and Lent is all about life in the wilderness. It's a way to remind ourselves of, of the need that we are constantly in as we are waiting for the second coming of Christ. And one of the main resources of Lent is this prayer that we call lament. Lament is crying out to God for what we need. It's, it's lamenting the broken world. Really, it's complaining to God. And that might be interesting to you, and it is to me, because what's the difference between the complaining that we see in Exodus 16 and the complaining that we see ex exemplified for us in the Psalms? See, there's a big difference between lament and grumbling. The difference is that grumbling is, is complaining against God and lament is complaining to God. So the problem is not just complaining, but it's where you're going with it. And so grumbling is saying, I'm, I'm so sick of this person, whoever it is, he's a jerk, he's a fool, let's talk about it. But lament is saying, Father, I need you. I'm in stress, I'm overwhelmed, I'm burdened. Will you lift these burdens? Will you carry me as a child? Will you get me through what I need? I can't feel your presence. I can't sense you. I need you to come through for me. And this lament, it's the most common form of prayer in the Psalms. 
How long, O Lord? Where are you, O Lord? Especially in Lent, there's an invitation to take our grumbling to the Lord and transform it into lament. To take it and to bring your needs, your desires, even your frustrations and your complaints before the Father because He can handle it. Lament is essential to surviving the wilderness. Now the good news is that the passage doesn't end with lament. It ends with a gift. I don't know if you noticed, but God doesn't just give people the bread and the meat and the water. He even gives them another gift. It's the first time we've seen this gift in the scriptures. He gives them rest. As I said, when we're in the wilderness, everything within us is trying to fight, is trying to prove ourselves, is trying to get ourselves out of the wilderness. And God gives us like a day off each week. God gives us not always what we want, but he gives us the things that we most need to sustain us. See, in Genesis, it says that that God rested from his work on the seventh day, but now this is the first mention in all the scriptures of a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This gift of rest. It can be so hard for us to receive because of our desire to fight for ourselves and prove ourselves. But God offers us rest. Of course, this whole narrative is pointing to something even greater, even deeper, even more beautiful. One day, bread would come down from heaven again. See, I love this in the New Testament that Jesus says in John 6 that I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me will never hunger again. One day, streams of living water would pour out again. In John 4, Jesus says to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will never thirst again. Not only that, but centuries after our passage, there was another test in the wilderness. Right after his baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. Why would the Spirit of God lead the beloved Son into the wilderness? To test, to reveal, and to refine And where Adam and Eve failed their test, where the Israelites failed their test, where every one of us has failed our test, Jesus passes his test. Perfect obedience in the wilderness. He actually quotes from Deuteronomy 8 twice. And there is a true and final rest that only Jesus can provide. Hebrews tells us that there is a rest that God is inviting us into through our Lord Jesus. And in Mark 2, Jesus says it himself, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. There's a true and better rest for the people of God that only comes through Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the living water. He's the one who passed the test. He's the true and final rest. As a result of all this, we can know that whatever wilderness we find ourselves in, whether or not it makes sense, no matter how long it is, no matter how overwhelming and crushing it might be, how isolating it might feel, whatever the wilderness is, because of Jesus, we can know that God is with us, even there, that he is refining, he is transforming, he is building us into somebody new. We don't even have to suffer well because Jesus has suffered well in our place. 
but the wilderness is the land of transformation. It's the place where God carries you like a father all the way home. Let's pray.